In today's digital world where online is king, it's pretty impressive when someone chooses to opt into traditional print media. It's more impressive when you create a successful print magazine in just six weeks. Well, how do you do this? Well, my guest, Andrew Fishman, founder and publisher of Village Living Magazine, breaks it all down for us on this episode of The Latepreneur Show. Welcome to The Latepreneur Show, the only show dedicated to empowering first-time founders over 40. How is the entrepreneur journey different when you're over 40? Join host Paula Cooper, Latepreneur and founder of Dinaware.com, as she answers this question. She interviews experts, influencers, business, and thought leaders to help other latepreneurs sidestep preventable fails, provide actionable advice, and inspire them to succeed. Latepreneurs may be late to the party, but not to the hustle. Welcome to the show. Now here's your host, Paula Cooper. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. So tell me a little bit about Village Living Magazine and how that all got started. Well, Village Living Magazine was founded in 2012. I was 42 years old at the time. So a true latepreneur. I like it. Absolutely. I was looking for a change in my life. In fact, how it started was my uh, now wife and partner um, said to me, you know, you work so hard doing what you're doing for somebody else. You should do something that you're really passionate about. And we met some people in the community. They introduced us to some people that were specialists in branding. And six weeks later, we built a community-based magazine that was designed to connect local residents and local businesses. It took you six weeks to build that magazine? Six weeks from the time we came up with the idea to making the sales in order to fund the project itself and went to print for the first magazine. I'm, I did not know that, actually. I know your magazine. I didn't know that it happened so quickly. So why? Why did you decide to... So what I like about your magazine, and I said before in the, in the intro, is that I think you've got some real kahunis because you didn't just do a digital magazine. This is a full print magazine. Call it old school. Call yeah. it what you like. But I love the feeling of holding a magazine in my hand. Me too. I looked around in the community that I just moved into, which was Midtown, right around the Bathurst and St. Clair area. I saw there weren't a lot of choices out there in terms of publications that really catered to the real local flavor of the community and decided that that would be a great angle. I had done this one time before in early 2000 in Montreal as well. So I took the same concept, went and ran with it, and sure enough, it was a hit right off the bat. So what was different between, so what you, the, the first magazine was what? What was that called? It was called Westmount Living. Westmount Living. And that was in 2002, you said, right? It was. So what's, that was a long time ago. So what's the difference between then and now in terms of building a magazine? What, what did you have to adapt to? Um, the thing I really had to adapt to was the online component, for sure. That right. was something that in 2002, it really didn't exist the way it did today. So I was not necessarily a social media guru in any way whatsoever. Right. So Twitter and Facebook at the time uh, were really the biggest thing. Pinterest was big at that point. Yeah. Um, even Instagram was, wasn't around. So, so nothing was there. So we really had to teach ourselves everything from the bottom up. So just understanding how, not only how to do it, but how to apply it to the business. I think that when you're delivering content in a magazine in print, right. There's the genuine need to also deliver it electronically as well. Yeah. Because 
people receive their information in so many different ways. What's what's the distribution between print and digital? In terms of the number of people? Yeah. Yeah. So, so 35,000 people today receive the magazine every month, and online we reach about 12,000 people today, combined between Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and all of those followers are 100% organic in the sense that they just follow us because they choose to follow us. And they're not paid. They're not, yeah. Right. And is this, this uh, the magazine isn't subscription-based. It's a free magazine. It right? is. It's free. It's delivered to every home and business in Midtown Toronto. So I am so fascinated by this. So how do you build a magazine? How do you do it in six weeks? What? Tell me what's involved and what are the costs and the people and how do you make this happen? I'm just so and, – and I'm – Ultimately fascinated by the fact that you did this in six weeks. Blows my mind. It is, you know, having the concept and, and you know, it is because I had done it before, I did have somewhat of a framework. Right. Um, and I think it really all had to do with the content, which is obviously the most important thing. Um, in terms of coming up with the outline of the content that we would deliver into the community, that was the first thing that was most important. And it was things like, uh, well-being, wellness, community is obviously the number one most important thing. Parenting, because we saw a trend in the community where there were so many young families moving into the area and Midtown was becoming really this mecca of young families and bins and renovations. So there was, there was all the things that were a great recipe to really put a magazine together that would have an upscale look. Right. And great content. Um, and I guess it just took pure tenacity <laughs> to really go out there and start knocking doors old school. I did not do it in the new school kind of way. I went door to door and I introduced myself and presented my idea and my concept. And we got great buy-in right off the bat. Was there surprise when you'd show up somebody's door saying, I want an ad buy-in? Were they a little taken aback going, where's the email? hundred <laughs> uh, percent. I think it, it really sets people back when you walk through the door and you want to get toe-to-toe and belly-to-belly with people. I think they're not used to it today. I think I, just on a little bit of a pet peeve, I see so many people in social media where there is no other way to contact them, say, other than messaging or direct messaging them through social media. There's right. no phone number that exists to reach people in a lot of cases. A little bit frustrating, but, you know, you have to adapt to that as well and realize that there are other ways to communicate with people. So I think people were shocked to see if an old school methodology put into play in order to help build the business. Do you think that you were more successful in a shorter period of time because of that approach, because you took that old school approach? I think that it developed deeper relationships Oh, with the clients themselves. I think that when we look at our clients today and how long they've been with us, I think it's a testament to the level of of the relationship that we have. It is definitely deeper than just that email you're sending out or that text message that doesn't have that character right. in it, which I sometimes I find is missing in most communications. It, it's true. I send out a lot of cold emails and just trying to make them concise and personal and is a very, very difficult task rather than if I get on the phone and I'm a real human being, I'm not just a company pitching you some idea. It's, uh, it, it makes a difference the minute that I can get somebody on the phone or get them face to face. And I think we, we see that difference when we're dealing with, you know, Lexus on the park, a large corporation right. and the leadership and the decision-making process when it comes to investing advertising dollars or marketing dollars versus that new younger business owner who's going to wholly depend on social media to build their right. business. And I think it's, it's such a difference. It, it's unbelievable. So how do, how do you get the buy-in from the younger, more hipster, um, you know, 
person who's who or, or marketer who's who or not marketer or store or whatever the vendor that they are, just they've been used to selling things through social media. So how do you get their buy-in? What do you say to I them? Think, <laughs> I think, well, for sure. And I think for us, the difference is when I'm speaking with somebody who's in the younger generation, we will lead off more so about our online technology or yeah. yeah and our social media and then if it's an older you know person that i'm dealing with in my age bracket i talk about print um it always comes down to kind of a joke and i'll say you know we can charge you for the online for social media and give you the print for free or you can pay for the print and get the online <laughs> but i think it was the key of combining it all together right. so that when people are considering doing marketing they had it all covered social media online and print all together in one package so you mentioned before that you uh, had to learn this whole social media game. So I like to call that mastery and fast mastery. So how did, how did you learn? What did you, did you pick um, certain social media channels or did you just pick them all and kind of lock yourself in a, a room? How, how did you make that happen? Well, it's funny. We, we started where I was working more with Twitter and Facebook. And this was before there were Facebook groups and, and the way it is in the modern day right. today. Um, Iris was more, uh, my partner was more about Pinterest right. and, uh, you know, food items and do-it-yourself projects and things that were appealing to the reader. Right. Um, so we really just tried what was going to be the best uh, tool and what was going to get the best reception. And it was just a matter of, of hit and miss. And Trial and error. We do not do Pinterest today. It, yeah, no. <laughs> not yeah, for no our business. Yeah. But, but it's definitely Twitter, you know, for us has become the way to reach businesses and Facebook to reach residents and consumers. And, right. and Instagram is just really fun. Right. <laughs> right. So, so what do... In terms of your learning curve, what have you learned not to do with, in terms of social media? I've learned not to overdo it with social media. In, in what way? Uh, you know, I, I, I have to say I've had some great advice from people in the industry today and from my generation. who have We want that advice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we work with somebody who had offered tremendous amount of advice of not just when to put out information, but how often to do it. Or, you know, simple advice like, talk about other people two times, talk about yourself one time. Right. And there's all different philosophies in marketing. Um, so I think it was just, uh, you know, listening to the advice of people out there, uh, people who had gone through what we had gone through. And I think having a peer-to-peer -peer reference made a huge difference for us. Listening to the younger generation, actually, because, you know, for the most part, when I'm talking with millennials or I'm talking with, right. you know, younger generations than me, um, they do have a lot of information um, so really just had to attack each social media platform one at a time through trial and error and listening to people and posting things that, that, that really made the, the big difference for us, but it's taken a long time. I'm not there yet. I'm still learning. It. Me too. Me too. And it's the most frustrating part of, I think being a latepreneur is that I know that social media is something that I need to learn how to leverage and leverage properly. I kind of, on one hand, know exactly what I need to do, but kind of lack the, ability to make that happen um and and sometimes it's it's not so it's not so easy just handing this off to you know a social media pr company or an agency because you know you tell your story best and we've tried that I, you know it's funny i've hired people to do my postings on our okay. website and or i've hired somebody to do our social media as well but i think because we're so close to the ground and we're not 30,000 feet up looking down. Mm -hmm. we're, we're in the street every day working with businesses. So you're right. Who can better tell the story than us? Right. And so 
we do, but it takes a tremendous amount of time out of your day in order to really effectively utilize social media as a way of, of your, our own marketing. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the biggest drawback in trying to promote everybody in our business is that we don't tend to promote ourselves. <laughs> it, it's funny, you know, we, we promote the, we promote selling advertise the advertisements and we promote per se the content that's coming in, but it's only recently that we really started promoting the personalities within the magazine. Right. And that's made a considerable difference. So having to step back and learn from our mistakes to realize that it's more important to promote the brands within our brand. Right. That That's made a dramatic difference in every way. Because your readership wants to connect with you. A hundred percent. So as opposed to connecting, say, with me or with the magazine, it's about the people that, that represent us. And today we choose our personalities that, that are in the magazine far differently than we were maybe doing that three years ago today. And you're starting to see an uptake in terms of how your reader uh, interacts with you? A massive uptake in terms of responsiveness, interaction. Um, I think that it took time to develop the brand as a magazine in order to attract different people to the magazine as it's well. Al- it's, it's, always, it's always the case. People don't care what you do until you've actually made it. A hundred percent. And in our business, in the magazine business, it's a tough business. I, I'm not complaining. The kahunis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most, most magazines will put out one magazine and generally That's there's a, probably a very, I don't know the exact percentage, but a very high percentage that never make it to the second one, or they borrow a lot of money in order to get the magazine and they can never catch up. And in our case, we were very blessed that we didn't have to borrow any money and it was all ad revenue based. And to this day, you know, we've launched multiple magazines. We've never had to borrow any money. We've never had to incur debt. Um, so is that how you is that how you handle it that you went out and got the ad magazine the ad revenue first before you even sat down and started to design that magazine? Hundred percent. It was it was Smart. in concept. Came up with the branding. We were very blessed to have a, a one of the best branding companies we've ever met um, develop our branding and the look and the feel uh, in a general sense for the magazine. Right. And then took a concept. And went out once again and basically went door to door and said, this is what we're doing. We'd love for you to be a part of it. Here's our philosophy. And people came into it. And lo and behold, that ad revenue is what paid for the very first magazine to go out and continues to do so to this day. Interesting. So how much money do you need to start up a magazine? A lot. Did you, did you have a certain readership, like number readership in, in mind before that you would tap out at with, within a certain budget range? Our first, so our first magazine that. was 18,000. Okay. Uh, people would receive it. Our magazines are delivered by Canada Post. So okay. you have tremendous fixed costs up front, the printing, right. the, the design, the delivery, all of those things that, that come into play. So, I mean, a, for one magazine to start could cost you fifteen to $20,000 just to just to go out. That doesn't mean you're making money, but your break even or better, which is the most important and that, thing. And that's, and that's from concept to print to get it out the door and into people's hands, about fifteen to twenty grand per, Absolutely. per, per issue. Per, per issue. Absolutely. Okay. So, so tell me, you know, I just I stopped there for a minute and went, how do, how do you make that happen? So are, do you have an ad team that goes out or are you still doing the door-to-door? You're I'm still, still the guy. I'm still doing the sales, 100%. I am the one guy. In fact, you know, if I were to go back now and maybe change something a little differently, it would possibly be investing in a salesperson per se, I'm 50-50 on this, or maybe 51-49, 51 not to do it because we've had many salespeople. Right. Um, and the thing is, is that it takes a lot of effort and a tr- it takes a tremendous commitment to really 
make it work. And we've tried different generations to be a part of that process. And I think, you know, maybe when you're a little younger, there's a higher expectation today mm -hmm. um, and, and they want things faster. Mm -hmm. And this is the type of thing that takes a long time. I learned in my previous life that slow and steady in a lot of cases does win the race. It's a turtle, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and in our business, because, you know, a very large percentage of our advertisers are continuous and recurring, that you can build a great structure. But it's very difficult to find people. I think most people in business who are in sales spend their lifetime, and if they're really good at it, they're spending their lifetime looking for somebody else like themselves. And so often we never find that person who has shares that same passion. And then you have a lot of people that want to be in business on their own. Yeah. And they, they come in and they, they, they learn what they learn and then they go off to try and do something on their own. And, and you never want to stand in the way of somebody's passion. No, you, you want to bring them on and, and, and tap into that knowledge base that they have, help them grow. And then if they move on, they grow. This is the entrepreneur generation, right? Absolutely. I just think it's a little bit of a patience thing. You know, we have to, we see it in reading. Mm -hmm. I mean, in talking about delivering information. People will read their phone and see a headline mm -hmm. and maybe the deck, as we call it, that, that secondary line. And they assume they know what that story is about. And then they move on and they slide their, their screen and they're looking at story after story, getting the gist of it from what, what they're mm -hmm. believing as I'm the headline. I'm guilty of doing that. Me too, even for sure. But at the end of the day, that's not necessarily the whole story. So I think that things are rolling so quickly. The one thing that we did tap into early on from the branding company that we were working with mm -hmm. um, was there was a turn coming. They, they recognized this five years ago where there was a movement towards an increase in personal reading time. And today I think people are so inundated with electronic information that the idea of sitting down with a magazine. Like the Sunday morning paper. Absolutely. And reading and, and, and having some personal reading time that's an old school, the feel of paper in your fingers is on the, on the increase. And they had called us five years ago and we, we agreed. And today, even we're hearing stories how young children miss books mm -hmm. and they love touching the paper and the smell of a book. Oh, and, I'm, the, I'm the original book sniffer. I love it. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine being in a library is like a euphoria, right? Yep. So, so we see that happening now and I can see that people are just in overload when it comes to the delivery or reading electronic well, information. Too many screens, too many screens. And I get to a point now, I have a, a certain time in the day just before bed where I cut off. There is no screen. And if I'm reading, I'm reading from a, you know, a regular old school book. I want paper. I want the feel of the book. I want the quiet. I don't want the assault on my eyes with the, with the, uh, with the display and the brightness. Definitely a sense of tranquility. It is. It really, you know, and I, and I miss that. And, and, so that they actually did catch that. Because I'm also seeing this with parents that I know, um, that there's definitely that turn towards here's a book, not a screen. Yeah, and I think it, and I think it is important what you just touched on is that as a parent, you know, we have our children, and they're, it, it's scary to see how attached they are to that social media, Instagram, and, well, Snapchat, and things like that for that generation. But um, you have to turn off. You have to turn off before you go to bed. Otherwise, your brain is just going. And so anything we can do to help reduce that, the screen I time is important. completely agree. I was actually uh, scrolling through Instagram yesterday, and I came across an entrepreneur post. And dad was sitting down. He had laptop open. He was going to town. And there was a little baby, I'd say under two years old, 
in in his or her little little pajamas on an on an iPhone, laying down on an iPhone using this iPhone like it was second nature to them. And I'm thinking that's probably a little too young for those little brains. Like that that should have been a book in that baby's hands. And and he was like, oh look, I've got help. And I was like, no, maybe that. That shouldn't be what you, you're doing. Certainly not passing judgment, but I think that no. the, the these have just become tools and, and in, in essence, a crutch. It's easier to like TV, hand the, new the screen TV. over. It's like being in a restaurant when you see three kids with iPads or three kids right. now. I mean, I don't know if iPads are the big thing anymore. Because <laughs> pretty much by the time you're like six, you have your own iPhone. iPhone right. right. So I know our, our 11-year-old got his first iPhone the other day. He has a nicer phone than we have. You know? <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it is concerning sometimes. For sure. So, you know, we believe in paper and I think we're coming into a time right now where more and more people want to read paper and we're going to, we're going to go with that. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm all for it. So I, I want to go back to the process of, of getting this magazine off the ground. What, if you are a new publisher, I've got an idea for a print magazine. What should I do first and what mistakes should I avoid? Walk me through that process a little. Well, bit. I think the the first thing you have to do is really try to understand your reader. They're the most important part of this whole equation. Right. If if we don't understand your reader, you can't deliver the information. And I think even today, um, when I look back at you know when we were understanding our reader then and today in the five years, it's changed considerably because our area has changed considerably. Um, so I think that was the most important thing, was understanding who was it that we were appealing to right. first. I think the second thing was understanding the scope of the business or the, the nature of business in the community. Um, in our case, we cater to retail businesses, our brick-and-mortar businesses that shape the landscape of our communities. And, you know, people are very neighborhood-proud right now and community-proud in fact, just to kind of step back, that's how I came up with the original concept of the magazine, um, even earlier than 2002, was post 9-11 traveling around America, which is what I did, and going from the smallest of towns to the biggest of cities, and really just feeling that sense of community that existed out there, whether it was in Manhattan or whether it was in Lake of the Ozarks in Osage Beach where there was a million people in the summer and then fall came around and there were like 100 people, right? right? But the sense of community was unbreakable. And that's what I really felt when I launched my first magazine was how do you tap into that pride that exists in the community? That unity. And that was the beginning of everything. That was how the model started. And we said, wow, we want to be that community magazine. And, you know, we became the only, um, one of the only Canadian approved members of something called the 350 Project. What's that? And the 350 Project was basically encouraging residents to spend $50 a month at your local business three times. Oh, and And the reason was that 68% of all of those dollars would remain in that community. So as a retail business owner, you're paying your employee, your employee is going for lunch, is going to stop by the local store, maybe the, the retail store next door. So a lot of that money stayed in the community. We felt that if you could support your local businesses, and this was the foundation of everything, right. that you create an economically vibrant community. And at the time we had young children and it was say, I want to be in a community where my, you know, my 15-year-old or 16-year-old can get their first job at that local store. Right. 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 So that was the belief, and it still is today, 
Um, so how long did you have that first magazine for? The the first magazine I actually had three in Montreal. Okay, we I did the same thing as we did here. So we had right. three, and it was for a couple of years, okay. and unfortunately fell to a partnerships uh, and that that's always a it's difficult always, it's always about, it always comes down to people picking the right people right i picked wrong yeah. well and, and, I, and, and that's part of the latepreneur journey is figuring out how to pick the right people well i think you know the, the big lesson learned from that for me if we're talking is that i was really engaged in the sales and the marketing and i wasn't really interested in the business mechanics I wasn't in the banking. I wasn't right. writing or signing checks. I, I didn't care. I just wanted to be out selling and, and being the, the, the cheerleader of the business and really get it going. And I took my eye off the ball, and that was my mistake. So right. you learn, and you learn that just as important as it is to be out there and just as important as it is to be the face of something, you have to be engaged in every aspect of your business. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I, I see so many entrepreneurs take their eye off the financial bowl, not not knowing what their cash flow is, what their P&L statements are. They don't know how to even input that information or get it from their accountants. And it's really important to to really pay attention to those numbers because when you pull away from that, and sometimes it's a conscious pulling away because they don't want the stress of having to deal with it, it... it, it it really stymies your ability to grow and to scale and to understand, you know, where you can take risk and what you can leverage. And my job was made very simple when I was inspired by Iris, my partner. So you married, you married your next partner. So that, partner, that, that, yeah, we work together. We work from home. It's uh, a, it's an amazing experience. We've, we've been able to do so much, not only as business owners, but as a family and, you know, drop our kids off at school every day, pick them up every day, dual parents doing that. You just don't see that very often. Do you both work full time for the magazine? We do. This is what we do. This wow. is our, our whole family is, is, is this. And, uh, but it was made easy at the beginning because Iris, who I'll use the cliche is the great woman behind the man in our situation, <laughs> um, said, I want you to do for yourself. You know, you work so hard. And I told this before. And there were three things that she said to me. She said, I want you to do what you want to do under three conditions. <laughs> the first Side was... Side of a smart woman right <laughs> very there. Very smart woman, for sure. And she said, the first condition is that we cannot borrow money to, to start this business. Good. The second rule was we cannot reach into our own pockets to build this business. In other words, we can't take from savings. We can't take from equity. You can't do that. School funds. And the third and final thing is that the business must be self-sustaining from day one. Right. Three very big tasks. They're huge tasks and smart tasks. Yeah. It made a lot of sense. And she had her own career. She was in, in the service industry and, and worked really, really hard. And it just got, today, obviously, we're very pleased with the decision because now we get to work together and that has its own challenges as well. Right. Um, but those were the three conditions at the beginning. So kind of rolling back is understanding those principles that are guiding you in developing your business, understanding your reader, then finding the writers that can write to the subject matter that, that's that's going to appeal to the readers when you're nobody, right? You know, who are you? You're not attracting, you know, the top level readers. Yeah. But I will say that we were very, very blessed to have some people in our lives. And, um, you know, we, you know, through the business, my wife's business, she was able to speak with people who were into writing and were involved and engaged in 
our subject matter and said, hey, would you love to write? And they were like, sure, we'd love to write. I mean, to this day, um, we went back and, you know, sorry, just to start over. So we, we started with people. Those writers are still with us today. How many, how many writers do you have on staff? Um, well, we're all, they're all freelance. Right. And we, have, we work with probably more than 40 different writers. Oh, wow. Absolutely. And for the most part, I would say a good 25 of those have been writing for us for years now. The same writers, even at the beginning when we had no budget for writing. Um, so, so actually, you know what? That's a good question. So what what, is it, what do you pay writers when you're a beginning uh, newspaper with no money? <laughs> at the beginning, you, you don't. You, you, you basically have to go out there and say, hey, we don't really have a budget. So it was people who were looking to build their careers as well. Um, did we that had, actually work? It did. And wow. it, it, the difference was we went back to those very first people when we did have the budgets and started paying them. So, so what's it, what, what are those payment expectations? Because I think it's really it ranges. important. I mean, it, you know, a writer, right. I mean, most parents, if your child says, I want to be a writer, mm -hmm. send shrills down their spine because it's not exactly, you know, lucrative. A, lucrative. Uh, for some, for many, it is. It depends, right. you know, where you're writing. It was really appalling when we heard people like the Gazette in Montreal paying $30 for a story. Um I know it seems very glamorous, but for the most part, it's not very big. But I mean, writers can be paid by the word. Some are flat rate. It could be anywhere from $75 to $500 for a story. It ranges depending on who the writer is, what's involved right. um, in that. So it really is a, on a case-by-case -case basis. But roughly for every writer, right. there, there's a fee attached to it. So everything in a magazine, every page has a cost and everything costs money to put out. Right. Um, but... We learned very early on that, you know, next to the reader, the next most important people are your writers. You know, I learned early on in the U.S., uh, I, I had some great mentors in my life. And um, one of them had a title company in the U.S. in real estate. Everything is registered through title companies. And their company was founded in the 1880s. It was called Stewart Title. And wow. Carlos Stewart, the grandpappy of this company, wrote a book. It was a little what book, a pamphlet. Right. And it was given out to the all 1880s? of the executives very early on. It was very early on. Cartoon drawings, uh, probably a 18-page pamphlet or booklet. But the sum of the book basically said one thing, is that the greatest assets in any business walk out the door at 5 o'clock. It's not the ownership. It's not that. It's the people who work for you. It's always the front lines. It is. Those are the people that shape everything for you. And that's why they're so important. You know, everybody's important in the process, but those people that are working every day, you know, for them and their families, they're the ones that, that also count the most. And that's why they're like family. So when we couldn't afford to pay people at the beginning, we went back to that very first person and started paying them and then so on and so forth to today. Again, almost every writer that we have is paid. And I think it's a great testament to why our writers are very loyal to us. I have I have a lot of true believers in my brand as well and and you know just people have stuck with me and and I you know I constantly say that you know when we get to a certain point I will always be loyal to them because they've just been there right from day 1 with no expectation other than they want you to do well. And, and that I, that's my philosophy in life it's very simple it's help enough people get what they want and hopefully I'll get what I want I have no expectation but karma principle yeah, it's like a bank, you know, the more you put into it, the more you build up and you can draw upon it. And, and I think that, you know, it's just treat people well, yeah. you know, that's really the most important thing that you can do. And, mm -hmm. you know, in the, in our business, it's a tough business. People want from you every day, 
every day people just want something from you and it's tough because you have to make decisions we only have so many pages we only have so much time we that's why the online component became such a critical part to what we were doing because online is a lot easier to manage on a daily basis and get the word out whereas in print it's you know it's finite so that that was a really hard part so establishing the writers you know obviously the the reader the design the the subject matter the writer and then you know in terms of what we were doing is we were trying not to overload the magazine when we were building it that actually two, was my my next question what's the publishing schedule look like oh it's every every the 21st of every month is is it right with the exception of one day here or there depending when that date falls on um originally when we started we had three different magazines we had one that was east of in the east side of the city say between um Blythewood and Young and Bluer. It was Lee Side and Rosedale and Moore Park, that whole East of Young Street magazine. And then that was our second magazine. Our first one was from, say, north of Eglinton down to um, Bluer. And that was our original magazine. It was called Village Living West Village. Um, At the time, we were branding an area. And we were every other month. So we were doing two magazines every other month. That's how we started. And then I launched Liberty Village, Right. Probably to Iris's dismay. She, <laughs> and she was right, by the way. She's always right. I, I will say that. Now I'm saying it publicly. <laughs> That's right. So for perpetuity, forever. This is going to live forever. <laughs> so right. there you go. But we launched in Liberty Village and we felt it was a great area. Yeah. The downfall was it was very transient and very different. Um, so because it's, it is for for people who don't know, it is a trendy up and coming area, but it's full of millennials who cycle in and out of that area quite a bit. So exactly. it's hard to retain that readership, right? And the subject matter was so different that in our Midtown magazines, it was family and community and health and wellness and food and renovations and things like that, and you know more community concerns in different ways. Whereas Liberty Village was very different. It was young and, you know, all over the place where we don't... nightclub and, yeah. And we learned a lot. We learned that people who live there would go from their transit point to their condo, up their condo. It was like 13,000 condos. Yes. Or 11. I forget the number, but a lot of condos. And they would go from transit point to their their condo. They'd go up the elevator and then they come back. And they didn't necessarily support their own community. They were going to King Street and Queen Street. So... It just took away from what we were doing. It added a whole bunch of layers of work that we just couldn't handle as an infrastructure easily. And it took away from everything. So when we discussed it after one year of running a profitable magazine down there, we decided that we would end it off. And uh, I think it was probably when I had Moses Neimer on the cover and I asked people in Liberty Village, hey, do you know who Moses Neimer is? And, and they, they looked no at me idea. with like this. I know look who on Moses is. He, he was the original TED talk, only in Toronto with the Idea Summit or the Idea City, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Absolutely. In fact, it was Moses Neimer and um, a couple of other, Jeannie Becker and right. uh, uh, an advertising guy, a guy named Morris Saffer, way back when I remember. Icon. Yeah, and I remember being at the Metro Convention Center and um, looking up at them as this little. 16-year-old and just really mesmerized by them. And um, I can remember back to that day how inspired I was by just listening in on this conversation that I was privy to and for a very short period of time. But it was incredibly inspiring. And I loved the creative process and I love that feeling uh, when one of the ad guys would go home and we'd be in the house and he'd take like a musical score for an SO 
commercial and just the passion that he showed when he was playing it through the speakers in in his house, right? right? Yeah. And uh, you saw this passion and you're like, wow, I want to be a part of that. I want to feel that. And and I think that's where it all began for me. So that was, you know, 31 I, years I, I ago. Keep hearing, I keep hearing this, that, that there is this this sense of passion and community and unity that you keep wanting to, to bring together, even back in 2002 after 9-11 when you saw all of these communities come together. And I think that with latepreneurs, this is, they, they start businesses sometimes to solve problems, but I feel like that they're, and this is anecdotal, but I think if we were to do a big research study, I feel like a lot of latepreneurs, um, yes, they want to serve, solve problems, but they really want to get at some sort of passion level that they've lived half of their lives already. And now what do they, what sort of legacy do they want to leave for the last, you know, the last hurrah? And it, it and it's more passion-based than problem solving. And I think I see a lot of people, you know, around my age group, and I'm 47 years old that, you know, have been family people, you know, I see moms, dads, everybody who've you know, cater to their children all their lives. And all of a sudden, like my, I have a brother, both of his kids are at Queens University this year. His, his, his youngest is starting. He's, he's not going to have anybody home. So what, what do they do? What, you know, and I know, you know, I look at people and I see a lot of people. I see a lot of women because of the generation think, difference. Absolutely. And I think, I'm, I'm I think a lot of latepreners are largely women. I think it's probably skewed a little that way. For sure. And, and I think that at the end of the day, they have already done so much i mean they've, they've raised their families they've they've done incredible things mm -hmm. and then there's this emptiness right but there is a passion i think deep down inside that comes from somewhere like you're talking about that that thing maybe they gave up before they had children maybe Absolutely. or the thing that they said you know my husband's going here or, or people give up things all the time men and women and in all partnerships and i think it's it's really amazing to be able to tap back into that energy and i think it's amazing to have resources and guidance in order to do it because starting a business anyways is really really tough, it's really tough. starting it today in the modern day our day now it can be even tougher you know? uh, yeah it definitely comes with its advantages i mean it's unprecedented in history our access into the entrepreneurial world world it's you know it's you don't need a huge amount of capital, largely for most things, to do it. Um, but it can be really hard for latepreneurs. And what you were talking about certainly happened with me. I mean, there's no way that I could have done this as, as a mom. I couldn't have done this, uh, what I'm doing as mom. I always had that ambition, but that was parked. It was parked because my focus in uh, the entire time was raising my daughter into a, a good human being and being there for her. And there's, I mean, I could have done I could, certainly, I could have tried to start a brand when she was younger, but there would have been a huge cost to, to that, and it wasn't a cost that I was willing to pay. And I think there's upsides today that if you can harness the power or tap into today's methodologies, right. then I think just as hard as it is to, to build a business or to start a business as an entrepreneur, you can leverage it to expedite the launching of your business. I think that if done properly with great guidance, you can get the word out pretty quickly in a lot of cases, but nothing replaces that old elbow grease. Nothing replaces working hard. I, I, I met another guy that was very, very successful in my, in my trips around America and he had a very simple philosophy. Um, in fact, it, it, he said, I wake up every day 
and that could be at five o'clock or whatever the time is, I work as hard as I can possibly work until I cannot work anymore. I fend my day and then I do it all over again every single day. And it's spoken like a true entrepreneur. You know, I think at the end of the day, we're smarter today in our 40s and in our 50s. And as we get older to find that balance in our lives that I think is super critical and money may be a motivator, you know, or other things may be motivating factors Freedom for people. opportunity. Absolutely. And I miss the sense of community. I think social media mm -hmm. has done a job in separating us all. As much as it connects us all together electronically, I feel like it's driven a wedge between people. Absolutely. And it's always good and bad with anything that comes out. I will always get out of my, my house and get out of my car and stop and talk with people and say hello. And it's like the King of Kensington way back when. <laughs> you walk these, around your all these Canadian Toronto yeah. references that any of, anybody in the U.S. is not going to. Well, you know what? If you really want to learn about your business and learn about your That's community, true. get out in the streets and, and meet those people that are making the same sacrifices as you and talk with them. And, and I'm sure they'll be glad to share their stories just like most. And, you know, at the end of the day, it takes a monumental effort. It's like getting this huge flywheel going. It takes every bit of your energy to get that wheel moving. But once you get it moving, mm -hmm. then it just starts to go. And that's when it becomes really fun too. And I think it's important to keep fun in your life as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if, if it's all dull and hard work, I mean, definitely as an entrepreneur, you've got to do things that you hate doing. It's just part of the, it's just part of the journey. It's part of the game. But uh, You've got to, you got to love it somewhere. There's got to, you know, there's somewhere deep down in the, in the recesses of your gut. You've got to love, you've got to love it. Love what you do, yeah. right? If you don't yeah. love what you do, then don't do, do it. it. That's my advice anyways. You know, yeah. everybody's teach their well, own. I, no, I think it should be everybody's advice. You've got to, you've got to find some love in it. You've got to, got to, or move on. You know, there's always, there's always other opportunities out there. Absolutely. I, I like to ask this question. Do you ever have plans to retire? I can't see myself retiring. I see my father is at that point right now where he's 77 and still working. Right. Um, and I, I see other family members that are working to their 80s. Um, of course, they've worked for themselves for the most part. Um, you, you have family members in their 80s that are working for themselves? I do. You know, he was in the retail uh, fashion business and he has a clothing store. And I think a part of me says that if he didn't go every day to work, I don't know if he would have the same longevity that he has today. You know, you have that sneaking suspicion that maybe that is what keeps him going. I'm, I'm, I don't even think it's a sneaking suspicion. I think it's entirely what keeps him going. And I think that with latepreneurs, that's what's changing, is that we have this, this bulk, in, bulk of time in the second half of our lives that we're going to live pretty healthy. And we have a very different perspective of aging and retirement than our parents' generation did. It's, you know, we have no concept that we're going to go into the nursing home or, or that we're going to decay. It's, we're going to live this life to the absolute fullest. Because I know that you do a lot of paddle boarding. So I you're do. very, very fit. And, um, it wasn't always that way, though. It right. really wasn't. In fact, it was terrible. It was just a few years ago, I was, I was very big and very unhealthy okay. and changed my life to today. And in terms of retirement, I think that my idea of retirement is philanthropy, right. is, is finding ways to continuously give back to the community um, that has been so good to me. 
you, know. you do that through even through your magazine and you're not i mean you, you still make money off of your magazine but you are giving back because you're telling its story you're connecting its people you're connecting the store owners you're being you're, you're connecting it on that local level you're kind of breaking through that social media uh, disconnect barrier you know it's some of the favorite moments that i have we were doing a, a then and now um series in the magazine and it was talking about different iconic locations like the Faima building at DuPont and Christie used to be the Ford Motor building there was a racetrack on top or you know like things that people may not know I and didn't know that there's a rich history in our area and um, quite often well every month when the magazine delivers we'll get a phone call which we love so when the phone rings and it's somebody calling it's usually a resident usually an elderly resident saying was that the stairwell at castle loma or was that this particular place and it's so nostalgic sometimes and, and it brings back some great memories for a lot of people and i have to say that when we evoke that kind of response and emotion from people in the community it's probably my favorite part of what we do because you, yeah. you're connecting again, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, you're getting those calls. It's like getting out of your car and being the king of Kensington. And I love it. It's not an email. It's a phone call and you're, you're, you're speaking to this person or somebody telling me how their grandfather was the person that was building the library in Castle Loma or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. It's, it's just amazing. But you're right. That's the juice yeah. that really makes it worthwhile, you know, every day. That's pretty cool. So tell me how you start and how you end your day. Uh, well, lately it's changed a little bit. I start my day now much earlier. Um, I was going through a stage where I was sleeping in a little more. Now, when I say sleep, what, what, what's sleep? Yeah. seven o'clock, okay. uh. you know, lately it's been five o'clock in the morning getting up. And I did that for many, many years. I start my day usually um, on the computer. It's my one hour or so in the morning. So straight from bed to the computer? with a coffee in, in the middle okay. um, to make my coffee. I'll sit down, you know, I have to review certain things. A lot of times I'll do my postings that are going online on the website and doing the shares, getting the shares ready for social media. I try and do that first thing in the morning because it's so time consuming that during the day is when we're devoted to selling time and dealing with people who are on regular schedules. So we try and do that as early in the morning. Um, then, well, normally it's getting the kids off to school, right. which is getting easier and easier as they're getting, getting older. older. They're walking to school now. In fact, this year is going to be the first time where I won't be driving to school wow. in the morning, which was only basically a block and a half or two blocks. So it's really very <laughs> simple, but it's that feeling of taking your, your, your kid to school that is yeah. amazing. Um, and then it's right on the phones. It's calling people, going out to meetings all day long. Now we're getting engaged in a lot more events that are going on in the city where we didn't necessarily have the time to do that before. Fortunately, the growth of the magazine is allowing us time, uh, which is really critical because now we can bring in more people right. to do certain jobs. And uh, it allows us to go out and discover even more. And I think for me, because I left Toronto early, you know, in, the, in, in 1996 and moved back only six years ago, um, it gives not only an opportunity to get great coverage of what's going on, but rediscovering this amazing city that we live in. That's, that's cool. And so how do you end your day? Um, I end my day uh, really quickly when my eyes close. No, I end my day, <laughs> you know, we always eat dinner. We, all, we always eat dinner together as right. a family. It's really critical. And I think any of my day is really just at the end. My wife and I just spend some nice quiet time together and uh, so just kind of decompress from the business. We, do, we yeah. decompress. And I always applaud her ability to turn off her phone. She is so good at just turning off and not being attached to all the electronics. And I respect her for that because she's the leader in our family for that. And if there's something we can take from Iris is, 
you know, disconnecting. There is a time when you really have to disconnect and I'm working on it. I'm not that great at it yet, right. yeah. but I'm aspiring to be better. Well, all, all of the important people she wants is already in, the, are already in the same room. She doesn't True. need to connect with anybody. Our, our whole it. lives are in our house. So we work there, our family's there. Um, everything we love is there and it's everything we cherish is, is around us all the time. And I think that in and of itself is inspiring. If you ever need that extra oomph, to get going, you just have to look at your family. You just have to look at, at the people around you, not the things and, and any of that. That's important, but not, not the most important thing. But what you can give back to them. 100%. Okay. So the very, very final question, always for latepreneurs. Why, tell me why it's not too late. It's never too late. But why? So, tell me why. I think that if you have the desire and you have some passion and you want that in your life, if you want to be an entrepreneur, a latepreneur, then there's nothing standing in your way. There's no age, there's no gender, there's no anything that can stand in anybody's way to be successful, whatever success is as defined by the individual. Um, I think that if you want something, carpe diem, seize the day. Yep. It's it's everything that, that you can want and it's never too late. I, I don't believe there's a time limit on anything. And I think that if you want it bad enough, you should do it. And I think that you don't want to live with regret that you never did it. When the day comes and the very end is here, I don't want to have that regret that I never got to pursue the dream that I had. Or I don't want to be the guy that said, I regret never following this or never doing that. I want that sense of satisfaction in my heart and in my soul that I did. And I think that it's never too late. You can do it. Anybody can do it if you're willing to work really hard. And I hope in my advice to find a little bit of balance in that so that you do have the time to enjoy it. And I think having the, the wisdom later in our lives is a greater advantage versus a disadvantage. I think when you're really young and trying to do it, you you don't care about certain things so much. You're willing to sacrifice a lot more. Whereas as you get older, you certainly can appreciate things a lot better and therefore maybe seek more balance. And I think that what you can bring to the world is an amazing, whatever your idea is, bring it, you know, just, just do it. Yeah. yeah, you have a lot more patience and a lot more wisdom huge. and you can leverage the hell out of which, that. Which I think is great advice for the younger generation, just patience. It's a little more patience. And I think that, you know, just on a, on a, on a, on a, I guess on a final note, I live in a community with very old people. And it's, <laughs> a, it's an area in transition. Right. And the greatest lessons that we've learned, whether it's gardening or home ownership and pride in ownership, have come from our neighbors, our 87-year-old neighbors who grow amazing vegetables and have taught us how to do these things. And if you're willing to learn from generations before us right. and teach the generations you know, before us or, or after us, then we can impart tremendous wisdom and strength to and you. Beauty, it sounds like. It, it is, absolutely. So don't, don't ever hold yourself back. It only leads to regret, I think. So accomplish I your dreams. completely agree. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been so lovely having you. I love all of the information that you give. And I want to go out and start at my own print magazine <laughs> do now. It. You can do it. Lots of room in the market, <laughs> I, I promise. Love. So tell me, so tell people where they can find you. Uh, we can be found at uh, www.villagelivingmagazine.com or villagelivingmagazine.ca. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can also find us at latepreneur.com and follow Latepreneur on Twitter and Instagram. Show recorded on site at the College of Sports Media. 
your ticket to the show.